Welcome to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. We are a local church in East London, here to be a beacon of hope for Hoxton. And our mission is to worship God, make disciples, share Jesus and transform Hoxton. It is all gone. All of it. All the familiar sights and smells, all the usual hustle and bustle of life. They've been replaced by the acrid smell of burning and the stench of dead bodies. There is no one to comfort you. Your friends and families have been deported, if they were lucky, otherwise killed or starved to death. You have watched as your own children wasted away in your arms. Your home is a ghost town, defenceless, stripped of any beauty. And more than that, there's no place to find any meaning. The centre of it all, the place that everything revolved around, that made sense of all parts of life, the temple, has been utterly razed to the ground. It's gone. And worst of all, God is silent. In fact, God has allowed this devastation to happen, sweeping away everything that gives you identity and meaning and life. It is all gone. This was where the Israelites found themselves in 587 BC after Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And this is the context that the book of Lamentations was written. Maybe some of that resonates with you right now. We're going to be using Lamentations as a starting point during Lent to think about lament and grief and mourning. But before we start that, let's pray. God, I thank you that you are with us whatever we are going through. You are with us, even when sometimes we struggle to see that. As we think about lamentations and grief, I pray we would know your comfort. May your spirit be at work in us as we think about this. Amen. Now, I don't know how many of you have will have read Lamentations. It's not a long book, it's just five chapters sitting between the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. It's read every day, on a, every year on a particular day in Jewish synagogues uh, when they remember the destruction of the temple in 587 BC and in 70 AD, um, as well as the Holocaust. And many churches read large chunks of it during Holy Week at the end, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday and Holy Saturday. But it's probably one of the least read books kind of individually in the Bible. It is, to put it mildly, not a cheerful book. The clue's in the name. As I mentioned, Lamentations was most likely written shortly after 587 BC, when Jerusalem and the temple were completely destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, this hadn't come out of the blue. The first siege by the Babylonians had happened 10 years before, in 597 BC, when the elite of the kingdom had been deported. If you know the story of Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego being taken to Babylon, um, that probably happened at that point. But Jerusalem rebelled in 589, and the second siege started, ending two years later. And in that time and afterwards, more of the population was deported, and there was widespread destruction. Uh, The land was already facing famine after the crops had been destroyed. It's a standard siege technique. You destroy all the crops, then people have nothing to eat and they give up. The scale of this disaster is hard for us to imagine. 
though perhaps a lot easier for us now than a year ago. The people of God never thought they could suffer such a loss. Not just defeat by the enemy, but loss of the future generations, their children being killed, destruction of the temple, around which all their religious identity revolved. Tradition holds that Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah certainly witnessed the exile, and there's a lot of similarities between his prophecies um, and Lamentation. And John Goldengay, who's a theologian, describes Lamentations as Jeremiah's response to the question, how do you pray in the light of national tragedy? Some important things to note about Lamentations. It's a collection of five poems. So if you look at it in your Bible and you see like the, the line spacing looks a bit weird, that's because it's a poem. And the first four are acrostics. So each verse starts with the letter, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 verses in each chapter. Now this, of course, is completely lost on us in English translation, but it is a way of showing the totality of the destruction. John Goldengay says this, the poems give expression to grief and pain from A to Z. As poetry, we read it differently, don't we, than um, kind of narrative or history. There's exaggeration, there's metaphor, there's lots of overlapping and interrupting voices. But at the heart of it, it's a poetic response to national tragedy. When normal words have run out, when they're just inadequate, poetry takes its place. It probably doesn't take too much thought to work out why we might be looking at lamentations at the moment. We have, as a whole church, as a whole society, gone through one of the hardest seasons we have ever known. We're still going through it. There has been much loss, much to grieve, and so there is a natural place for lament. Except as a society, we don't really know how to do lament or what it means. So over the next few weeks, in the run-up to Easter, we'll be thinking about what it means to lament as individuals and as a church. There are loads of laments in the Bible, especially in the Psalms. Actually, the majority of Psalms are Psalms of lament. Another theologian called Hetty Lallemann, she sets out various aspects to communal lament in the Bible. I'm going to run through these really quickly. They tend to include address to God, setting out the complaint or the need, a confession of trust in God, a request, appeal to God's covenant promises or care, a promise that they will praise if things improve, an assurance of being heard, and if things have improved, praise of the God who answers. That's the bit of the structure, but the heart of it, they come out of a sense that things are not right. Kathleen O'Connor calls them prayers of protest, complaint, and grief saying any conditions of deprivation that inhibit life and prevent full human flourishing call for, indeed demand, lamentation. Lamentation names what is wrong, what is out of order in God's world, what keeps human beings from thriving in all their creative potential. What this all boils down to is acknowledging that there is a gap, sometimes a very big gap, between how things are and how things should be. That's why we've called this sermon series The Gap Between. And each week we will be looking at a different aspect of what we do in the gap between. This week we're going to be thinking about weeping in the gap between. 
But before we get to weeping, some thoughts on why we lament. Lamenting acknowledges, often publicly, the suffering and emotion of those lamenting. It doesn't generally offer solutions, but it allows people to tell the story of where they're at. Lamentations as a book can seem pretty chaotic at times. It certainly describes a very chaotic situation, and that's okay. Psychologists talk of chaos stories, those fragmented, often repetitive accounts with no clear narrative that survivors of trauma tell when they're just starting to find words to describe what they've been through. These are stories that need to be heard and need to be heard again and again, need to be told again and again as people piece together their lives again. And these stories need to be heard because giving voice to chaos brings affliction into the light and creates a space where healing may be possible. We lament because lament can help us heal after losses, both big and small. We might also receive, lament, um, receive revelation of God through lament. Iziaka Kulibali says, Lamentations teaches us to express our sufferings, putting our distress into words that we address to God in prayer. Suffering may be the path by which God leads, him back to, leads us back to himself. And following on from that, Pete Scazzaro, who does a lot of stuff around emotionally healthy spirituality, talks about how lamenting suffering may be the way that God enables us to mature in our faith, making us more compassionate to others and liberating from us from the masks we have a tendency to wear. There's going to be a couple of links to a recent podcast that he's done about grieving the pandemic, uh, which you may find helpful. But let's be honest, though. In the West, we are really bad at lamenting. We are really bad at grieving in general. Many of you may not even have come across the word before. It's a rich word and there's so much more to it than just grieving or mourning. Grieving being what happens internally, mourning being what happens externally. And lamenting includes that but includes more as well. But it's not a word that we really use. We have a tendency in white Western thinking to deny or play down anything that isn't positive, progress, on the up. And grief stops us in our tracks. It brings us low. So we don't want to dwell on it too much. The stereotypical image of the English stiff upper lip comes to mind. Must not show emotion. How many of you have had this kind of conversation with your friend? A friend asks, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm fine. You, you don't seem yourself. I said, I'm fine. And of course, no one is left in any doubt that you are in fact definitely not fine, but the door is shut on that conversation. Now, I know that many of you listening are from non-white cultures, either non-white British or non-British cultures. And many other cultures have far healthier ways of dealing with grief and mourning rituals that you might do as a family or as a community. And I would genuinely love to know what your cultural ways of mourning and grieving are. Feel free to put them in the comments thread uh, or email me. Um, 
I do genuinely really want to know. It'll help me as I prepare my sermon for next week, but also just a general interest. There's so much we can learn from other cultures that do this just better than we do. And do forgive me if the rest of this talk seems a bit obvious to those that you've grown up in cultures that actually know how to express emotions. I'm middle class, white, British, from an emotionally reserved family. So basically what I'm saying is that from this point on, I'm preaching mainly to myself and I'm letting you guys listen in. And I hope that's okay. Now I'm jesting a little bit, but this, genuinely the starting point of lament is to pay attention to our emotions. How are we feeling? If we don't know how we are feeling, we're going to struggle to tell God how we're feeling. And it's all very well saying that, well, yeah, but God knows, but actually there's something about us being able to articulate that. God knows everything and we're going to pray. We still are called to pray. Lamentations, chapter one, verse one. In our translation says, how? How deserted lies the city? Now the Hebrew word is acre, which I probably haven't pronounced correctly, which is what the book is called in the Hebrew scriptures. And more accurately translates as alas or oh, the message version puts it, this verse, oh, 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 how empty the city once teeming with people. There is something gut-wrenching in that. It's not enough just to narrate our feelings, saying, I feel sad. We need to let it in, to actually feel it, or perhaps to notice that we are already feeling it. As I've already mentioned my family are not particularly emotionally expressive so I'm not particularly in touch with my own emotions sometimes though I'm a lot better now my husband Ian is very good at helping me get more in touch with my feelings he will look at me and say are you okay you seem sad and initially I'm like no, no I'm not sad but sometimes when he pushes me gives me a moment to think I realize oh no actually I am sad I just squashed the feeling down I hadn't realised. And just because I'm not crying doesn't mean I'm not sad. Or maybe I'll be able to say to you, I'm feeling really angry right now, in that tone of voice, very calm, not appearing angry at all. But I am angry. I'm just not necessarily letting myself truly feel it. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Lamentations couldn't be more different. In verse 2, it says, bitterly she weeps at night. Literally, this is translated, weeping she weeps. Which is again a common Hebrew linguistic tool to emphasize it's an intense emotion. Weeping she weeps. In verses 8 and 11, Jerusalem and her people are described as groaning. This city itself speaks in verse 13, God sent fire down into my bones. Verse 14, my strength is sapped. Verse 16, my eyes overflow with tears. Verse 20, see Lord how distressed I am. I am in torment within and in my heart I am disturbed. Verse 22, my groans are many and my heart is faint. There is a lot of emotion being expressed in lamentations, not just weeping, but a whole range of emotions and impacts on our bodies. There are a lot of tears. Even the roads mourn and the gateways and the walls. Well, lament isn't just about sadness. 
is about the whole range of emotions we might feel when there is a gap between what is and what should be. Sadness, yes, but also disappointment and confusion and guilt and regret and frustration and anger and so many more. A God is frequently depicted in the Bible as having emotions. We have a range of emotions because we're made in God's image. And yet, so often we struggle to acknowledge our emotions. David Kessler, who is one of the people who developed the stages of grief model that many of you will have heard about, said in a recent interview that we're the first generation to have feelings about our feelings. I.e., we go, I shouldn't feel so sad, others have it worse. You know, he says, if we say something like, I feel sad, but others have it worse, we should just stop at, I feel sad. Our emotions are valid. It's not a comparative thing. And the reality is, we often use these kind of arguments, others have it worse, as a form of denial, because we don't want to have to deal with how we are feeling. It's not, I shouldn't feel sad because others have it worse. Actually, we say that, but more honestly, what we're saying is, I'm going to pretend it's not that bad because I don't want to have to deal with the sadness I'm feeling. And we might be worried that if we let the feelings in, they will overwhelm us. Maybe they will for a little while. But Kessler says that feelings move through us. We feel them, and then they move on. And they might return, might come back at points, but they tend not to linger if we allow ourselves to feel them. They actually hang around far longer if we try and squash them down and don't acknowledge them. As Christians, we sometimes have an additional difficulty in acknowledging our emotions because we've picked up this false idea that emotions are somehow positive or negative, that some emotions, like anger, may even be sinful. This is not a picture we get from the Bible. There is a lot of anger in Lamentations, both anger at God and God's anger. If God's angry... Anger itself is not a sinful thing. Emotions in and of themselves are neutral. What we do with them might not be, but the emotions themselves are morally neutral. The problem is, if we've got this idea that some emotions are sinful, we will try to avoid them. But we can't control our emotions. We might be able to control how we respond to them, how we express them, but we can't really control how we feel. So we'll still end up feeling angry but we'll just stuff it down inside ourselves, trying to make it go away. But it generally doesn't go away. If you try stuffing something into a container that's just not big enough for it, eventually it ends up leaking sideways or exploding out in other ways. It's like that cartoon image of like packing a holiday, uh, packing a suitcase for a holiday and trying to squeeze so much in, you have to stand on the suitcase to do the zip up. It's bulging and the slightest touch sends it flying out, exploding everywhere. That's what happens with our emotions when we bottle them up. How many of you have had trouble sleeping over the past few months? Or find yourself more irritable, with a higher or lower appetite, more lethargic, more anxious? These are all bodily responses to emotion. And that's true for other emotions, not just anger. We might not be weeping bitterly all through the night like Jerusalem was, but it doesn't mean we're not grieving. 
I can tell you personally that I don't cry all that often, though I've cried more in the last few months than at any other time. But I've been reduced to utterly hysterical laughter by the smallest thing, because if I don't laugh, I'll cry instead. I've also noticed that I'm more unsettled. I can't concentrate as much. My body is tense all the time. And sometimes I find that my fingers and my knuckles in particular are really twitchy. And when I think about it, I realise that my fingers are twitchy because I want to crush something or smash something because I'm angry, really angry. And I'm not acknowledging it, so it's it's expressing itself in my body instead. And it's invariably far better for me to express that anger or that sadness to, to God than to try and stuff it inside and it ooze out against my husband or my son. So I love what Kathleen O'Connor says about lamentations. The speaker's anger at God is neither blasphemous nor unfitting for prayer. Rather, it is a language of fidelity. They present God with all that is wrong with the world and their relationship and in doing so are eminently faithful. Their their anger signifies that they have not let go of God. If we're angry and talking to God we're still talking to God. And I find that encouraging. It is okay to feel our emotions. Not only is it okay, it is essential if we're going to be spiritually mature people. Now maybe you feel like you just have too much going on in order to stop and feel stuff right now because you know that there's a lot going, you know that there's a lot of emotion there and you just don't feel like you can deal with it right now. And that is okay. Numbness is often our first response to grief and it's a safety mechanism to stop us being completely overwhelmed. But just check yourself. Are you actually too busy? Or are you just telling yourself that? Or making yourself too busy because you're unwilling to let yourself feel? We perhaps need to be a little more childlike in this regard. Young children, like toddlers, have absolutely no filter on their emotions. If they feel it, they show it. So, my son's not quite two. When we tell him not to do something, and he wants to do it, he starts to wail. To him, it is the end of the world, and he is responding accordingly. But young kids also do something um, known as puddle jumping when they're faced with grief. One minute they're in the tears and the next they appear absolutely fine and happily playing. And as adults we can go, well that seems a bit odd. (laughs) But it's not just disingenuous. It's they're expressing the emotions as they feel them. And their body stops them from being completely overwhelmed by any one emotion by moving them on to another one. But they feel their emotions. But kids learn by coping and they gradually filter their emotional responses more and more, which is a sign of maturity. We do need to grow in that. But if you're a parent and carer, and if you're a member of the church, then you can be a spiritual parent. So if you're an adult, I'm talking to you right now. And if you're not quite an adult, I'm talking to you like your future self. Do you model to your kids that it's okay to feel sad or confused and to express that in healthy ways. How will they know that you can bring your emotions to God if you don't show them? Now, that can be a difficult thing. 
And if that sounds really scary for you, it sounds scary to me, um, I recommend checking out the Parenting for Faith resources on creating windows, which is one of the tools I use. And again, a couple of links are going to go in the comments threads about that. But Parenting for Faith have got tons of resources about how we share faith, how we do faith with our kids. So as I wrap up, let's recap some things. It's okay to weep. It's okay to feel angry, disappointed, frustrated, confused, and it's okay to feel those at God. In fact, we need to allow ourselves to feel our emotions if we've got any chance of healing well. One of the ways we can express how we're feeling is through lament. As I said, we're going to be going into this more over the coming weeks as well. Lament is an expression of faithfulness. It's the way we practice truth-telling. O'Connor again. Laments are prayers of protest, complaint and grief over a disaster. And with great passion they appeal to God for deliverance. They arise from faith in the power and willingness of God to save. They insist that the world is an open system in which divine intervention is always possible. As I said, we're going to be looking at more what lament looks like in the coming weeks. And towards Easter in Holy Week, there's a team working on a garden of lament, which will give us different ways to lament, to grieve, to cry out to God in our pain and loss. But for now, perhaps some of you need to let yourselves weep. Perhaps sometime this week, you need to sit with members of your household or friends on the phone and ask, how are you doing really? And be prepared to let yourself answer that honestly too. That might involve tissues. That's okay. And that goes for you men as well. It is time to rediscover the power and the healing of lament. We're going to have just a moment of quiet. And in that, ask yourself, how am I feeling? And let yourself be honest with God. How am I feeling? Don't run away from chatting with God if you need to. Feel free to pause this stream and come back to it later. Thanks for listening to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. New talks will be uploaded every week from all of our services. And do check out our website, stjohnshoxton.org.uk, for more information.